waterwaystravel.com for anyone who wants to save both time and money. Imagine that. You can rely on experts in their field. You can rely on people who are passionate about their work. And that is exactly how Waterways came into existence. It is because the founder, Sean Murphy, was passionate about surf exploration. It wasn't even intended to be a business. He was just traveling, surfing, and uh, found some world-class waves, developed connections with people in those locations. And now you and I can benefit from all of that R&D. He has done countless trips around the world since 1994. And as you know, with surf travel, you're not always scoring. Sometimes you're getting skunked. But the reality is because Sean did it for all these years, you and I don't have to get skunked. We benefit from all of the knowledge that Sean and his staff um, has gained over the years and made available to you and I. So visit waterwaystravel.com and they will tell you exactly when to go where, what to bring, make sure that you're comfy and well-fed. They will ensure that you have whatever level of luxury and accommodation that you require and making sure that you will score along the way. They are your one-stop surf travel concierge. Epic service, travel intelligently at waterwaystravel.com. Enjoy. Realwatersports.com is the real deal. We talk about their 1500 board inventory, but they also have fins, traction, leashes, board bags, everything that you need for surfing and surf travel. Uh, sun bum that we've been discussing here is also available on realwatersports.com. Clothing, everything you need for more than surf travel, just daily life. And they've been at it for over 20 years now, since 2001 in Cape Hatteras, but shipping worldwide. So no matter where you are, they can supply you and they're dedicated to customer service, which never goes out of style. So for boards or whatever you need, consider realwatersports.com. Wouldn't have any promo codes or anything like that, but tell them that we sent you and you will be treated like family. So thank you very much, realwatersports.com. Southern California native, professional surf commentator, podcast host, and co-founder of the Women's Surf Network, Shannon Hughes joins the show today. It seems like maybe just one short year ago was the first time that I remember seeing Shannon on a WSL broadcast, and then, in very short order, Shannon was everywhere, announcing the ISA Games, the Olympics even, and an ever-increasing amount of WSL CT events. Shannon seemed to blow past the normal learning curve for commentators who get the call up. She was sharp, pointed, knowledgeable, had quick recall, and also had a comfortable rapport with whomever she was working with. She and I had a direct message about something last year, and then two weeks ago, the boys over on Lipped Podcast in Australia invited both Shannon and I as guests on their podcast to do a media roundtable discussion about the upcoming finals day. So that was the first time I actually interacted with her face-to-face, but I figured it was time to get to know Shannon's backstory, since I presume we're going to be seeing a lot more of her on the WSL broadcasts in the coming years. So, without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and allow me to introduce you to Shannon Hughes. (laughs) 
Shannon Hughes, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Good to officially meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. I've seen you on TV. Yes. Or on the internet, I guess. I've heard your voice. Yep, <laughs> yeah. there you go. We did a podcast together last week. Yeah, that was fun. So there's that. Yeah. Um, congratulations on such a successful year. I mean, not just 2022, but the last 18 months or so, I feel like the Olympics, the WSL call up. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it's been really fun. Um, it's been fun to kind of see a lot of work paying off and to get to spend more time doing something that I really enjoy. Good. Yeah. It's been great to see. You've been Thanks. a wonderful addition. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll get into the commentary and all that sort of stuff, but you just mentioned when you walked in that you spent half your year in Australia. Mm-hmm. How does how's that work out or how did that come to be? Yeah, so my husband's from Australia. Um, he's actually dual citizen, American, uh, Australian, but we sort of have the goal to spend as much time there as we can, but with WSL work or ISA work um, that we both have, we just end up on the road a heck of a lot. And so it's looking like we'll be able to head back in a little over a month, maybe end of October, and then probably get a good six months there, um, depending on kind of what happens with contest work. But yeah, we that would be like our dream home base. But we get a lot of work if we're in California for this time of the year. I grew up in Huntington Beach, um, just up the road. And so it's great to be able to come around and see friends and family as well. But yeah, most of the time that we can, we try and get there, but work often pulls us away. Uh why do you prefer Australia or why is that the end goal? We just, um, I guess for my husband, it's home. Um, we've got a great little community in a place called Thurul. It's like south coast of Sydney near Wollongong. And um, we actually both work in a little surf shop setup that's similar to this album Surf. We've got a cafe. I make coffee. He works in the shop and does heaps of freelance stuff as well. Um, but we've just got a good community and really small, like coastal area that's got lots of good waves um, we're close to the city in Sydney, but we're far enough away to where we still feel like we're living in a small town, which I think in California is very difficult to find, totally. like unless you're going to central California, yeah. pretty much. Um, and so there we still get the warmer climate, cold in winter, but really nice through the summers. And I think the people have just made us want to be there as much as we can. I'm jealous. Yeah, it's a good place. You've got it figured out. Yeah, good sort of, maybe not well, <laughs> as much as we want. It, uh, but honestly, I think the division of time is actually the key. Because if you spent full time there, yeah, that might grow tired after a few oh, years. Oh, I probably too. would. Aaron would be as happy as can be. Okay. Like never leaving the triangle that he could like walk to work, walk to the house. Like that would be like his dream goal, walk to the beach. Yeah. But for me, I definitely get that itch and need to travel. And yeah. yeah. What's the name of the shop? Give him a shout out. Finbox. Okay. Yep. Sweet. Good spot. Chris Kelly. Thanks, Sweet. CK. <laughs> we're paying our bills when we're there. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, you mentioned growing up in Huntington Beach. Yeah. Uh, what's that backstory and how did you get involved in surfing? Yeah. So I grew up in Huntington, went to Edison high school, um, played soccer most of my life, soccer, volleyball, a little bit of crew in college and grew up in a surfing family. So my dad's a surfer, taught my brother and I, when we were pretty young, uh, my mom never really took to surfing, but loves bodyboarding and just like being in the ocean all the time. And so we grew up as a homeschool family on the beach, like pretty consistently. Didn't surf heaps. We're not like the standard Southern California homeschool family that probably most of the audience has in mind right now where the kids own e-bikes and spend all of their time at trestles and do scoring in the afternoons. Um, we definitely were not in that space, but we just grew up, my dad grew up with a love of longboarding and instilled that in my brother and I. And so mostly grew up 
only riding long boards. I think I only paddled a board under probably eight feet for the first time when I was in my 20s. Wow. I'd never, like we'd never had short boards in the house or mid lengths or anything even. Um, but yeah, just took to loving it. Surfed both Chica a lot. Kind of stayed away from that pier zone. Like weren't part of a competitive pack at all as a family for surfing. That was all in other sports. Um, but yeah, my dad just instilled in us a love to want to surf until we were as old as we could still stand on our feet. What and did he do for work? So he worked for kind of the Orange County Times, the LA Times, um, huh. and just in their uh, like mechanic side of things. Oh, I see. My mom was a bank teller, and so they were just, yeah, kind of blue collar working class. and Fascinating. Yeah, had us in the ocean. Uh, you mentioned college. What did you study, and what did you want to do with your life? Yeah, so so different than what I'm currently doing. Really? Um, I, yeah. No, it usually is. It's so different. So I just went to Orange Coast. Um, I never transferred after that because I left the country and kind of never really came back properly. But I went into Orange Coast with a major in geology and a minor in Spanish. Interesting. What yeah. would you want to do with geology? I just like really enjoyed science. Like all through high school, it was just something I was really into. Not the kind of biology side of science or medical side of things, but really enjoyed physics, um, chemistry, and that sort of thing. And geology was kind of a niche that would provide a really good job if I were to pursue that and want to go into that. I was pretty good at math as well. Um, and I'm so thankful I'm not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I like, could not imagine being stuck in a world, like working in an engineering space or something along those lines. Um, Did you actually yeah. want to do it or was it just you need to go to school and you need to get a job. And so I guess I'll do this. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, like yeah. it was That's how kind of it. within that space. Like really did enjoy it. Like I really enjoyed the science side of it and the idea that maybe I could be working in some space that had me outdoors. Like there are a lot of, a lot of kind of positions in that world where you are working in nature, right? which would be great. Like if I could be out hiking and kind of like working in that geological field. But the reality is that so many people in that space end up working for like, you know, a building form or something like that in there. And they're in a building they're somewhere in, a building, in Irvine. <laughs> yeah. Crunching numbers, like not um, exactly what I want to be doing. I so, remember yeah. so many counts, guidance counselors or teachers or whoever being like, well, what are your interests? And I say surfing or the ocean. They're like, marine biology. You <laughs> yes, should be a marine biologist. Totally. And I'm like, I, that sounds super sciencey. Yeah. And I don't think that's what I'm talking about at all. But yeah. I do um, admire and am jealous of the young kids who have a very direct idea. They're like, yes. I very specifically want to be yeah. an astronaut or whatever it is. Cause I had none of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it's amazing to think of people that like have that real drive for something and pull through with it. Yeah. From so I think I, I probably had that genuine interest, which is why I picked something so specific um, and had some really cool teachers and professors along the way too, that were like really encouraging of that rather than just kind of going into chem or trying to go towards physics or do something completely different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm also just so happy that that's me too. You know what my day-to-day -day life looks like. Well, I think maybe when we were young, you had to, um, there was 10 categories of things that you could get into. And in order to make a living, you had to work within one of those categories. Yeah. Thankfully the world has changed. Yes. And it empowers people to work in the gray and to design their own path and all that sort of stuff. Totally. And I think too, growing up as an American, we're so ingrained with that idea that we have to go through high school being told that we need to go to university and go to the best possible one. That's going to cost however much money we're going to spend the rest of our lives paying it off. Unless we come from a family, maybe we get a scholarship, whatever the deal is that can pay for that. 
And the whole goal is to get a good job that provides for the family and provides health care and different things that we need here in the U.S. just to survive. I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate about living in Australia is that there is this kind of different take to the workforce where everyone's so passionate about what they're doing anyways. But healthcare is provided. Right. <laughs> There's just different things that I feel like growing up here, at least at least in the kind of understanding that I had coming out of high school was you got to get a really good job that provides for that, stick in it for the next 40 years, and there's no other options. And that's definitely changing now, which is really good. That promise turns out to be unfulfilled, actually, because <laughs> it was true, I think, for my parents' generation. Yeah. And I don't know how old you are, but the um, company, you had a pension. So yeah. if you stayed with them for 40 years, then you were taken care of, and that equation made sense. It was a worthwhile trade. But pensions no longer exist. A yeah. lot of those companies, even the most iconic ones, have actually gone bankrupt and some of them out of business. Everything's outsourced. And so the math doesn't make sense anymore. There's no point in spending a quarter of a million bucks on college in loans to come out and get a job that pays $40,000 a year or $50,000 a year. Totally. And the employer is going to replace you in 10 years, you know? So in uh, entrepreneurial spirit, creative spirit, leadership, all these other things that does exist in the gray are now more valuable than that college degree, I think, to a certain degree. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's so different from what, so I'm 31 now. I graduated from high school, I don't know what, almost 15 years ago, something like that. And it's just so, even when I was graduating then, that was still sort of the mindset though. Like it wasn't yeah. totally that understanding that things had changed as much as our parents' generation. And yeah, it's just crazy to think of what we kind of now have to be doing, I think, for work and for creating different kinds of opportunities because life looks, it will look so much different when we're in our 50s or 60s. Totally. Yeah. Um, the one consistent that I had on all of my report cards, <laughs> regardless of what the teachers were telling me to get into, the one consistent thing said, he's talkative. And look at me now. Yeah. That's <laughs> they awesome. never knew podcasting was going yes. to become a thing. <laughs> That's so good. I know. I want to go back and rub it in their face. And I'm like, yeah. you wrote this in the line where it says, what's wrong with me? Yeah. This was corrective behavior. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. now Fix here we are. David. Exactly. Yeah. He's too talkative. Yeah. And here we are. Oh, that's so good. Um, so how did, speaking of which, how did you get involved or interested in commentary? Um, yep. So when I was 21, I left college. I left Orange Coast thinking I would travel for maybe six months and then go back and transfer to a different university to finish my degree. And I ended up living in Jeffrey's Bay. I did an internship with a nonprofit called Christian Surfers. And we do t tons of work in the community and in the surf scene there. And so we're working with competitive space, um, doing lots of volunteer work behind the scenes from like low ranked little junior events to board riders clubs all the way up to the J-Bay Open and the CT that's running there. And so that was kind of my real entrance. I'd been surfing my whole life, which is why I moved there and took this internship. But that was my first taste of actually the competitive world and had really no taste of it, even growing up in California with all that this world exists within. In the competitive epicenter. In an extremely too. competitive epicenter. Um, and so moving there, it kind of I started competing myself and started wearing a jersey on the weekends and had so much fun with it and... Um, started getting really annoyed when the beach announcers were like having a chat about what they're eating for lunch or what their thoughts were on some random thing and not giving us our scores or the time updates, like little things like that. And I'm a total communicator, hence being in the job that I'm now in. 
And I just ended up getting asked at some stage to jump on one of the events and be a beach announcer. And I was terrified. Like I'm an actual, I'm an introvert, not stoked at hearing my voice like booming out over speakers anywhere. Um, and I had a few friends that were like, yeah, you got to do it. You got to do it. It's so good. It's good. And I had an American accent and I was living in South Africa. So like bring an American accent. will bring this level of professionalism to this Billabong Junior series, right? And so I ended up jumping on the mic there. And that, for the first time, I think I was like, oh, wow, I could actually help. I could help the kids that are in the water because I can clearly communicate. I can make sure that they have their scores in their situations. We can still do the plugs and the sponsor things and everything that we kind of need to do from a keep the organization happy. But we can also make sure that these kids are advancing through their heats because they knew it was happening and not because we were forgetting to announce things when they weren't duck diving or sitting under the water. They're actually listening to you. So that was kind of my entrance, um, was from a beach announcing side of things. And then that just ended up carrying me through and through competing a bit and doing some stuff on the longboard tour, like total longboarder still, um, I just ended up getting brought into the booth for webcast and suddenly I ended up on the CT and here we are with a job in this, which is great. Um, it's interesting hearing your origin story and how much it's reflected in your current iteration of what you're doing. Mm. I'll come back to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you feel or do, was there a moment where you felt was like a flashpoint where like, oh wow, I've made it? Um, yeah, I guess. So the first call up I got to the CT was in 2019. Okay. Um, I know I was, was trying to think of what was the first event. Yeah. So the first event I ever worked for the championship tour was J Bay. Um, we were living there at the time still. So I ended up living in J Bay from 2012 until 2019. So How seven years, <laughs> like best thing ever. Was it really? Oh, like nothing in life. I, I have zero regrets for making that decision. Um, definitely didn't see myself living there for that long ended up with such a good community and work that just worked out to be able to be there. And my husband through the organization that we were working through and he's a regular footer who loves right hand point. So for him, it's like a dream place to be living for a long time. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of, we ended up living there for a long time, which also pulled into, I think a lot of my surf knowledge, a lot of the community I was spending time with um, because the cost of living is so cheap there. I was able to do more traveling probably than if I was living in California during those years mm. in my early twenties. So I was able to be on the road for events a little bit more. And yeah, I got the call up from Jed Pearson, who's our head producer, mm -hmm. uh, for the J Bay open in 2019 and to do so just some sideline reporting interviews. Um, and then we did a test run, me and Rosie in the booth, like on one of our lay days. And they played through some heats that had run the day before to see how Rosie and I would go paired as commentators together. And I fill that play-by-play -play role, same as Joe Trapel or Ronnie Blakey. And they were kind of wanted to test that out. And I didn't know, okay, well, what are they thinking for the future? I have no idea. And I was so surprised that I got in the call up in the first place. And apparently that little run through went well enough, which I felt like was probably the most awkward thing I'd ever done in my life. Um, Rosie was such a natural and I was just like, we've watched this heat already, but now we're calling it as if we've never seen it. And like, what's uh, they're recording us. And I know my boss in California is going to watch this, like, you know. Um, but because of that, I got the call up to the US Open, which was happening a couple weeks later. And then with that, they took me to Europe um, for that leg, which was would have been the last time that we ran France for Hasegor and then Portugal. And that's kind of when I felt like I'd made it. I remember being at the U.S. Open, which was obviously a QS at that stage, a QS 10,000, thinking this was huge. It was my hometown. I'd never dreamed of working U.S. Open. 
So that was really big. And then having that conversation after maybe day two or three of work and Jed came up to me and said, hey, we'd like to take you to Europe. Like you're doing really good. We're really happy with you in that play-by-play role. Like it's a space we don't have any women in, in the, you know, anywhere. So they'd be keen to bring me in for it. And I was thinking, oh, like next year, like, cool. That's like, right. you know, a year and a half away. I could be going to Europe. And he's like, nah, this like a couple months, like you're coming to Europe with us. Are you free? Like, yes. Are you crazy? Of course wow. I'm free. So yeah, that was kind of when things sunk in that this was something I could do. Um, <clears throat> you talked about with the first juniors event, you were nervous, but being able to just focus on like the fundamentals of let's just deliver the scores. I can do that. And yeah. then that kind of calms you down. Yeah. Um, did you feel any renewed anxiety kind of being on that U S open stage and how, oh, do you totally. do, how do you deal with it? Yeah, I think, um, man, I have really learned how to manage my stress. I definitely run as a high stress individual and I've recently quit drinking coffee, which is helping with things. Really? Um, but yeah, kind of managing, I guess, talking things through with either with my coworkers, doing some planning ahead of times. Um, I definitely learned that I'm someone that operates very well with a notebook in front of me doing research on the heats that I know I'm coming into. So if I've got, we typically run in like two on, two off, right? Say an hour on, an hour off. And my hour off, it's not a break for me. I will run, get some food, have a chat with a couple surfers. If I can find surfers that are maybe coming up the next matchup. And then outside of that, like I'm on Google, I'm doing research. I've got kind of a a website my husband's helped build for me. That's, we just cumulate, kind of bring the notes in that I'm writing down at every event throw them into that website and I can pull them up again. And so doing that research so that when I sit down in that chair, I feel very prepared and not that I'm going to get, I think the goal is, is actually to keep most of the notes that I've written down or nuggets or something to actually not have to use those. But in the event that it's super slow and there's nothing to talk about and there's a 10 minute lull that we have somewhere we can go. That's also relevant to that heat and isn't just some random thing that we're going down some rabbit trail on, but is hopefully current and relevant to the surfers that are currently in the, in that heat, to the audience that's listening and specifically to hear about those surfers. So that's something that has helped me, I think, calm those nerves is being very well prepared heading into it. Um, now I have the goal of walking into heats with no notes mm. <laughs> just to try and challenge myself more. Um, don't do that at every event. Wouldn't do that if I was calling the finals of an event. But maybe round one, if it's a challenger series event, try and call, you know, half the heats in the day with no notes if I know who those surfers are already. Um, But yeah, those are some of the things that have kind of helped me to figure out that space and to feel calm in that moment. Uh, Can you identify the source of the anxiety? Like, are you, is the audience who you're concerned about, you know, um, judging you? Is it the employer? Is it your coworkers? I think it's probably myself. Oh, really? I think more than, I think there's, they're kind of in the beginning was probably that total fear of, okay, if I don't do a good enough job, I'm not going to get hired back hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that's a good, you know, we want to do well at our jobs so that our employers like us. Um, we want to feel adequate or excellent actually, not just adequate. Um, there's also obviously like we work in surfing and (laughs) there's plenty of trolls out there. So kind of want to make sure you're always getting things right. Not too many slips at the time, but that always happens and it just is what it is. Um, but I think for me, it's just in school, like thinking about, you know, you were talking about the, the sort of things you'd get on your report card. Like if I didn't get A's, I was, I didn't know what I was doing with my life. And I knew that I could control that. It was something that if I worked hard enough for, I could pretty much outside of, you know, certain classes that I'd maybe naturally struggle with. 
that I could do pretty well. And so I think I just have that probably ingrained in me from even just from childhood of knowing that if I'm, if at least in the world that I'm working in right now, it's that same aspect. If I put the preparation in, then I can be pretty good at this. Mm. And if I don't put the preparation in, sometimes it's actually totally fine and I'm learning that more. Um, But also if I don't put the preparation in, I'm the one that didn't do the work. And so other people will suffer because of that. Um, You talked about going without notes or attempting that. It seems like the compiling of the notes serves the purpose, even if you don't access them later. Exactly. Just doing the work and having the information, writing it down, commits it at some point to some degree to your memory yeah and then you can freestyle you know i think they say like i don't golf but yeah i think they say with golf like you practice your swing over and over and over and over again but when you get up and you address the ball you forget everything and just let that memory take over you know you don't think through the motions yes you let it go yeah just yeah 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 and i think that's so much of it um i think there's certain things where it's like we want to make sure we have a stat correct so going back to look that thing up, yeah. definitely want to make sure that we have it written down the years that Steph won a world title. It's like certain things like that, where it's like, maybe there's some things that are just committed to memory already, but the more that we do those, that little bit of work beforehand, then it can flow off the tongue naturally. Sound hopefully like we're not sitting there with 15 pages of notes. And when the boss comes in my ear, when our producer's like, hey, we're coming on camera, clear your desk. We're literally all shoving papers. And all of us do this. I mean, Joe's got notes with him every day. Kaipo's got notes with him. Ronnie's got notes. I think that's also something that in observing the way those guys do their job, like those are the guys that I'm looking up to, you know, Joe and Ronnie. If I can be like them one day, that's that's what I'm striving for in my work. And seeing the preparation they put in behind the scenes and also the stage that they're at with it now, having done this, been in this seat on the CT for at least a decade or so, more than that. Um, They've got so many things committed to memory because they were there in person to witness this moment. They can draw from those personal experiences, which is huge. And I'm starting to gain that because I'm, this week I got to watch Steph win her eighth world title. Now I'll be able to talk about that because I got to see that in person rather than going, looking up a stat, okay, that happened in 2022 where when I come into the scene, I think there's so much that happened prior to maybe 2015 that I'm just like kind of clueless about because I didn't see it in person. I wasn't following the tour maybe as much back then or reading the articles on things. And so there's just a lot more research that I'm currently having to do that I think in, you know, five to 10 years time won't be the case. Yeah. Yeah. When I said that your uh, origin story is actually reflective in the role that you play now. What I meant, and you've kind of touched on it again and again, is that um, it feels like you are the first professional commentator that they've hired, that the WSL has hired since Joe and Ronnie. Mm. And um, it's elevated the broadcast. And what I mean by that is the other commentators all are uniquely qualified because they are either an ex-pro surfer right or a coach a former coach or a current coach or whatever and um that's fine and they're great and oftentimes they'll even have a uniquely qualified person coming in to provide cultural context for this one event and that serves a purpose yeah it's amazing yeah but they don't necessarily bring them into other events or any of that Mm -hmm. but 
I think all of that, while I understand why it's done, it's become 80 or 90% of the broadcast are these uniquely qualified people. Some of them have become very professional in their presentation, what they do, but it's still not the same as a professional commentator. And so I feel like you're the first professional hire since those guys, which was like you said, decades ago. Yeah. And I think that you have elevated the quality of the performance of the broadcast as a whole. Oh yeah. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is, it is cool. Like I like that dynamic cause it's, it's so fun for us to be able to sit next to that, you know, for this year to have Laura on tour with us. Like she's someone that I was like, oh, she surfs so good. Like growing up, we're about the same age and getting to watch her journey was so fun. And now to get to like pick her brain in those heats and to the time that she spent on the road with girls, it's just such a different perspective because she's a tour veteran because she charges some of the scariest waves in the world in comparison to what I can bring to things. And so it is this fun dynamic of kind of, yeah, mixing things up like that. She's been a great addition and she's so comfortable. Yeah. You know, there's like something very, very charming about it. Yes, totally. How much direction does the WSL provide for you as a commentator? Not a lot. Um, (laughs) There are in some ways, I think in the beginning there was more direction for me, like thinking of that 2019 season a lot more feedback on sort of, you know, I had tons of questions. I want to learn. I want to improve at what I'm doing constantly. And they were really good at then answering those questions or giving me more feedback on, okay, adjust the way you're saying this or make sure even for me, like jumping into the chair for the U S open that year, I had never really, I'd been working the QS for years. So by that stage, by 2019, I'd been commentating on the longboard tour since 2015 and the QS since maybe 20, probably 2015 as well, 2016. And the level of production there's just so much lower and they've obviously yeah. had like no budget that they're working with, right. but we all know this, right? We all tune in to watch a QS 1000 happening at Cruy or something. And it's like, okay, here we go. Waves are pumping. Waves are pumping. <laughs> this is great. Hopefully we see some good surfing and like, we'll see what happens with broadcast. But those guys are doing what they can with what they have in front of them. And so for me, like jumping into even like learning how to, okay, coming in and out of actual commercial breaks and having all these little things that were like plugging in and kind of breaking a heat into thirds, like building a storyline throughout things, creating the drama, all of that stuff that I had no clue about. And honestly, the majority of the coaching that I received in the beginning from the top end, like from Jed or from Milby or from Camille, who's our producing team for the CT. And like most of it was kind of, Oh yeah, forget that someone ever told you that because that was wrong. Interesting. And so kind of recreating, I think I had a natural knack for it that they were happy to work with and then helping me kind of go, oh, that advice was actually bad or you've kind of been trained in the wrong way in this space. And so forget about that completely and watch real sports. (laughs) They're kind of constantly telling us to watch NFL, watch NBA, pay attention to Doris Burke who's an NBA commentator, was a player um, for the WNBA for a long time. That was one name that was given to me early on. And start seeing how they do their jobs because that's what the WSL wants. Obviously very different from what the ASP was doing before. Um, what do they mean by that? I think just in a very professional tone. Like they, I think that there is a, a very definitive goal to have a broadcast similar to an NFL broadcast. That is like something you'd see on ESPN that's highly professional. Like you talk about me and Joe and Ronnie being those professional commentators paired up with those icons of the sport. Um, I think a lot of other sports have done that really well. 
And so they want us learning from them rather than from each other. That's probably most of the advice that I've been given, actually. Rather mm. than learning from the surf commentators, yeah, yeah. kind of forget what we're all doing. Don't look at those guys, actually, for an example. And look to what a lot of other sports have been doing. Um, <clears throat> is there any limitation on kind of uh, what you're allowed to say or being critical of athletes or anything? Because that's the way, from a viewer it feels like there's a lack of uh, the commentators expressing the viewer's experience. Mm -hmm. So the commentators are talking about, and the easy example is Felipe Toledo in his first heat in Tahiti this year, not paddling yes. for waves, you know? <laughs> yes. And wow. that, that was the conversation of the internet <laughs> oh. going into the event. Yeah. Oh, we were all expecting that, right? Kind, yeah. Kind yeah. Of. Or wanting to see if he does yeah. or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. so then when we're watching the heat and none of the commentators are even mentioning the fact that he hasn't paddled for a wave until there was like two minutes left. I think somebody finally brought it up. There is a feeling that we know these hardcore surfers that are in the booth are thinking it. Why are they not saying it? And mm. so the question then is, is the, the WSL or the direction preventing the commentators from saying it? Or maybe the commentators just aren't sure how to be critical without being rude to Felipe. And so they're just kind of playing it safe. Like, what is your thought on that? Yeah, I think from my experience, it's more the second. So it's more that we're trying, I think for those guys in that situation, I would have loved to hear them just be like, man, he hasn't paddled for a wave. And you get certain commentators that will, like I think Ross Williams has been pretty critical of things in the past. Strider, Strider's gotten more comfortable. Strider's with gotten more comfortable with calling things out. Even Ronnie, I think he's, He's tactful about it. Um, he's definitely, he's very tactful about it. But I think that there is more probably that angle of just trying to find that weird balance. And maybe this is some, somewhat has worked in my favor coming in a little bit newer and having not grown up in that whole competitive world. I wasn't friends with everybody through my teen years and my 20s. A lot of these faces I'm meeting for the first time in the last couple of years and starting to build some sort of trust relationship there as a journalist show that I can also paddle out and have some fun in the water, but that I'm kind of here as in a little bit of a different space where so many of this crew, they've been friends with each other for so long. And so I think a lot of it is that space of them kind of trying to find the balance between being critical and being good journalists in that, in that seat as a commentator, but also recognizing that it's their buddies and a lot of them are going to go out for dinner afterward. And I think it's just a hard position to be sitting in. I it, I wouldn't say it's coming from WSL like direct, you know, don't say anything negative, don't don't put anyone down or anything. Um, but I think that we probably have a lot more freedom than we take advantage of. I could see in that. what we could see in what we could say. Yeah, and I'm definitely like can be accused of that as well because I get so excited. And I'm like, well, oh my gosh, they're amazing, you know. And it's such a delicate line. Yeah. Yeah, but it. <laughs> And it's easy to get overwhelmed by it is amazing. And the fact, even if somebody does something moderate within the heat, it's still an incredible uh, level of surfing. Yeah. You oh, know? totally. And so you, yes. and you're in a beautiful location and yeah. it's a crazy wave, especially yeah. in Tahiti. So it is easy to get caught up in that. But yeah. again, the viewing public at home sitting in their office, having it up on a second screen so their boss doesn't know that they're not working. Yeah isn't subject to all of those things. And so it comes across very differently to the viewing public. All they see is Felipe didn't paddle. Or the mm -hmm. other example is at pipe, 
at the beginning of the year when the women, it's like all this talk <clears throat> leading into it, the women are going to run at pipe and then it's the day of days and they said the women were going to run. Well, why aren't the women running today? And there's no comment from anybody about why the women aren't running. Then they put yep. them out the following day when the waves are mediocre, you know, and then yep. there's no comment about why they did that instead of that. Yep. So the lack of expressing what the viewing public is witnessing is the question, but you addressed it already. Um, the thing that I do understand is the trolls on the internet will always devolve to rude and crass. Mm -hmm. And I understand why the commentary team would not take that approach. And it's very difficult to be critical um, and insightful without being rude. And so I understand yeah. where the commentator may decide, like, it's so easy to fall down that rude hole in which I will be held accountable probably yeah. by both the employer and the internet. So I'm just going to walk, I'll just stay on this side of the line and not even address it because then, you know, you're just safer, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, yeah, totally. So. No, it's, yeah, it's definitely a funny line of like, yeah, wanting to see those moments. Cause I was sitting at home watching pipe and going, where the heck are the women? And why haven't we been told? We just need to be told. That's all we're asking for. It's, I totally understand if they're not going to, the, whether it's that the girls don't want to paddle out, whether it's the WSL doesn't want to take that risk by sending them out, like whatever the deal is, it's totally fine. We just need to be let in on the secret. And I think that they made, like we, I was definitely like surprised by that approach at Pipe and that there wasn't just at some stage, one of the crew with it, you know, one of the kind of side reporters just doing a sideline hit with Jesse. So right. just ask, like all we need to know is, is why if it's because the girls don't want to paddle out cool Say if it. you yeah like whatever whatever the deal is that's fine we're not going to criticize that i think i mean there's a lot of people that would but but i we can form our opinions about it but not knowing is the worst thing and i think that's something that that i agree with you with like i feel very passionate about, about wanting to educate the audience because i don't work every event there's plenty of events in the year like this year i worked maybe f i think i worked four cts and about four, probably do about four of the Challenger Series events and Longboard Tour. So many of them, I'm sitting at home on the couch too, going like, wait, what's happening? I want to know. And so if I can help bring that into that space as well, like, yeah, I totally hear you. Well, I'm not sure what they're afraid of. Like if they yeah. had that conversation with Jesse and Jesse said, we talked to the women, um, they want to wait for tomorrow. She doesn't even have to say they're scared or whatever no, it is. Like yeah, the, exactly. the athletes have chosen to wait for tomorrow. Yeah. And then the internet is hypercritical about, oh, the women are scared or whatever. The WSL doesn't need to be scared of the internet having that conversation. The internet engaging in the conversation is good. Yeah. You know, and even if it's critical and they're, oh, the women are afraid, the women athletes are afraid of surfing pipe or whatever. That's fine. That's all engagement. It's yeah. all commentary that builds up and lifts up this thing. And then we're all going to be checking in tomorrow to see there's going to be twice as many eyeballs. If there's conver controversy today, yeah. twice as many eyeballs tomorrow. So I'm often confused at the uh, unwillingness to kind of steer into the controversy. Yeah. And it's just being transparent. It's not like artificially yeah. drummed up controversy. It's just yeah, yeah, the transparency totally. that I think yeah. people want. And if they engage with it, it's okay if it's negative or positive or wherever it goes. Yeah, totally. And I think the one huge positive that came out of that at Pipe was that at, at Tahiti, it was pretty much the opposite. So I don't know if you had picked up on that at all, but they were pretty open with sharing how they're making the call. 
Um, Jesse was specifically doing some like of those Instagram selfie videos, but explaining when the women when when the women were going to go out. They even said in the call, I believe they said it for the opening day, like why they were running the women on opening day, which was obviously extremely hard to surf Tehupo when it's not barreling because the whole goal is to get a barrel. Right. But they wanted to give them the opportunity to get a feeling for the lineup and to be able to do some turns. And they were black and white about that, which was really cool. And then obviously the girls didn't get put in on the big day, which would have been, I was like, would have been so cool to see that. But you have to realize they haven't been surfing there. And the I don't know that anyone aside from like, honestly, maybe Courtney has ever paddled out there and had waves of consequence because every time the girl's gone a trip there, any one of them on any free trip through their very tight schedule, if they can fit something like that in, they are like always getting skunked. But um, on finals day, they did also give an explanation. I think it, it would have been from, um, maybe it was Renato on the ground. So Jesse wasn't in Tahiti, I think, but she was doing some stuff on her own Instagram. Um, but Renato giving that explanation, or Will Hayden Smith actually was, of the men surfing first, first heats of the morning, so that the women could observe and see how the guys were positioning themselves, what they were going for, and then the women's heat went out. And I can't remember if it was like quarters, semis, or if it was- I don't remember. Semis, anyway, something like that. And and so they gave that transparency, and then they kind of, it was kind of a weird schedule through the day because of that. But I thought that was really good. So they made that adjustment, and I feel like the audience was receptive to that Mm. because we understood Mm -hmm. why it was, and it totally made sense. Like, of course, if these women are here to learn for, one of the first times they were surfing this place, which would have been great to know at Pipe at the start of the year. Yeah. 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 Completely. Um, do you know what the method is for the WSL selecting which commentators come to various events? Why do you get invited to certain ones? <laughs> yeah, and not no, others? You can, yeah. Anyone okay. can ask and none of us know. Okay. No, there's definitely like some of the crew that have just been in it longer, I think have a little bit more um, priority in the matter. And so um, we do get asked what events we want to go to. This was the first year that I kind of was asked, like, give me a dream list, you know, where, where I want to go this year. Um, I got some of those events, which was great. I also pretty much put down, I'll go to every contest. Okay. <laughs> like I wrote a list of literally every event. It was like, I know there's 20 on here, but I'll go to everyone. Um, so I ticked off some of those boxes, but yeah, I think they're just trying to bring in new flavor. Like you mentioned earlier. Um, I mean, there's, there's going to have to be at least two play by plays on every team. So there's like me, Joe, Ronnie, Kaipo, uh, Chris Cote. Paul Evans now joined in this oh, year back on the CT, which was great um, from the UK. And then, so they're always going to hire like two, maybe three from that, our little pack. And then outside of that, they're going to fill it with, if they can get some local-ish voices in or people that have a tie to a certain place, they'll usually try and I think pull on that because that brings more, it just makes it more fun. Yeah. I think the commentators, if, if we've got a special tie to a certain place, we're going to have more fun doing our jobs anyways. But yeah, it's uh, as good as a guess. Got any. it. Yeah. Um, do you have an ultimate ambition for your commentary profession? Is it to be full-time on the WSL? I mean, obviously you did the Olympics. Uh, is it to go ESPN to a different organization? What's your ultimate ambition? Yeah, I guess um, my my ultimate goal right now is to stay within surfing. Um, I think there's probably a world in which I could try and branch out into other sports, but the WSL is really it. I mean, I work for the ISA as well. I'll be doing world surfing games next week, which is awesome because they provide us with a lot of work through the year as well. 
um, and really consistent. And we know a lot farther in advance um, when we have work coming with them. But for me, I, yeah, I just love the role that I'm in. Um, I think as much as I really enjoy calling any heat, I love women surfing so much and I'm so passionate about it. And I, I get so much joy of seeing those women actually get to surf no matter what the conditions are like, but actually getting to see them in good waves for like maybe the first time in a lot of their careers uh, in the last year or so. And so if I could end up in a space, which is kind of what's happening now, where I get to call the majority of women's heats at an event, that would be awesome. And then I can fill in on sidelines, like do anything else, fill in for a few heats in men's, that's fine. But there's also guys in my role who I think really it comes across their passion and their interest in men surfing that doesn't come across the same way when they're watching women surfing. Mm. And so if we can kind of find that balance and I don't think it's a necessarily a negative, I think it's just, we're all going to have things we're more interested in. And if we can tap into being able to do those really well. So yeah, a full-time job would be really great, but I also do enjoy the idea of probably as much as the work would be great to be on the road for 10 events a year, that's a lot of traveling. Totally. It's a lot of time away from home. It's probably something that I would have been more interested in a few years back than yeah. I am currently. Um, and so being able to do like a solid number of events in the year, but still be able to be at home is really nice without being full time. Um, yeah. And to call as many women's seats as possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the detail. It's interesting to hear you talk about um, feeling a lot of passion for women women surfing and that there's males that you can identify have more passion for male surfing. And so they might not be the best fit to call a women's seat. Cause I always thought I had two thoughts about it actually is, um, it used to be they'd call in a women's commentator just to commentate the women's heats. Uh-huh. And if it was Rochelle Ballard or somebody who like won world titles, then I understand that connection. Yeah. And they do it like we've said already with, um, cultural commentators. Like I'm thinking, yeah, Mexico last year, bring in Mitch Salazar because he speaks Spanish and can provide yes, some sort totally. But I'm like, Mitch proved his worth. So part of me thinks, great, I love this, and this actually does enrich the broadcast. Yeah. But my other part is, Mitch proved his worth. Why isn't he included on other events now? He's yeah. clearly good enough. Yeah. Is he only good enough for this one event? Or is yeah. the female commentator in the past not good enough to then call the men's heats? Yeah. Like it feels performative in a certain yeah. way, but I also understand that it does enrich the experience. So that does work too. But I think it's more of what you're saying, which is just where does this person's passion lie? And let's implement them in that scenario maybe. Yeah. And I think like it, it definitely doesn't apply to everything because there are some commentators that just end up with a ton of work and it's awesome for them. And they figure out the secret yeah. recipe to getting heaps and others that don't. Um, I totally agree with you on like putting more of that, that women's generation that came before us. Like we don't get to hear their voices ever. If we do, it's for like a specialty heat. That's, yeah. It's not actually those women as part of the commentary team. Like we've never had, We yeah, they they are not bringing in. I think of three, there's Kiala gets called up, Rochelle yeah. occasionally, Megan Abubo, I can remember a yeah. couple of times. Oh, that's true. Megan's done, Megan did Maui like as an actual, like on the team commentator. Yeah. But a lot of the other ones with Rochelle, with Lane. Lisa. Um, with Lisa, they're brought in literally to call like a heat. Yeah, exactly. Which is awesome. Like I eat that up. And I think that's one thing too that, that I think is so important in thinking of our audience 
is like there's probably an audience that when I come in and I can talk alongside of one of the girls, whether it's Rosie or Laura, there's an audience of girls listening in that want to hear us talk about girl surfing. And there's a different audience that's listening in that doesn't want to listen to us talk about girl surfing because they're men that don't care about girl surfing or something like that. Or sometimes when I tune in and it's a couple of guys and I'm like, oh, I, I'm not really that interested in it. Maybe I want to watch the heat for that heat specifically, but I'm not going to sit around and listen to the next three hours of the broadcast for that reason. And I think that's like personal preference and what I'm interested in. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. There's an opportunity to open the aperture and include more audience essentially yes. is what it comes down to totally and i was thinking about that i mean as cool and awesome as it is i didn't watch the broadcast for finals because i was just down watching with friends on the beach um but i know that they had yeah mick and kelly mick and kelly which is like i mean i like anyone wants to tune in and listen to what those guys have coming out of their mouth right like on any topic pretty much yeah but thinking of it, I had, this is kind of sparked mine because I'm thinking, yeah, I can see the justification for not having women in the booth for those heats, for the women specifically, for Steph winning and beating Carissa for world title this year to just have men's voices on. So such great men to have calling that. And then I had a young girl come up to me on the beach and she was like, what was the deal with him not having men in? And I was like, well, it's Mick Fanning and it's Kelly Slater. And like, I've bought into it. I'm like, this is so epic. And she goes, I don't care who's McFanning. She literally was just like that old guy. Like, why is he relevant? And I'm like now trying to tell her why Mick is still relevant and why like most of the surfing world. But the reality is that there's a whole crop of young women of, of different, like a different audience that's sitting out there, not wanting to listen to the heroes of men surfing, talk about women surfing when they could be listening to the heroes of women surfing talking about that instead. And their connection to the sport, their connection to that moment would be so different because they get to listen to women talking about that. And I am like, a, I hugely believe in that. And I think that there's a full missed opportunity that's just sitting there where we could have heard Lane on, we could have heard Rochelle on. There's so many cool women that I think are well-spoken, they're analytical of the sport. They're there because they love the sport and they have watched the careers of the current women on tour and they could give us so much insight. And they've been through the world title battles, like all of the credibility that Kelly and that Mick bring into that conversation. There's a whole lot of women that bring that same credibility. Totally. I want to listen to them. Yep. Yeah. I would, I would spend, I would go back and rewatch probably the whole day mm. if there were voices like that included athleticgreens.com slash surf is our nutritional essential in our home. This is the quickest and most convenient health correction that I have ever made in my life. Uh, health and nutrition always seems to require more time and effort each year that you age. So it feels like a burden. It's a lot of work, but AG1 flipped that and turned it on its head. It's complete and comprehensive nutrition in one scoop of dark green powder. It's superfoods and nutrients in a powder that you mix with eight ounces of water. Super simple, easy, effective. And that is what I need in my life is something that's simple and effective. And I don't really have to think about it because I have a million other things to think about. 
So it's been the key component to my health and daily brain functioning, key to pumping out all of this weekly content year after year. So huge thanks to AG1. We've turned a lot of friends and family onto AG1, and I honestly haven't heard one bit of negative feedback. So I encourage you, athleticgreens.com slash surf. Go there, find optimal health. When you go through that portal, you will support our work as well. So you sign up once, you can cancel anytime, but sign up once and it'll show up at your door monthly, a bag of green powder, mix it with water every morning, and know that you're getting all of the important stuff in your diet. What a relief, what an easy fix. Athleticgreens.com slash surf, enjoy. When you're hiring for a small business, you wanna find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How did you get involved in podcasting or what drew you to podcasting? Well, pretty much exactly that. Okay. Um, is just that love for women surfing. So I, yeah, we've got a podcast, The Double Up, with Rachel Tilly, who's a longboard world champion. Um, she won her world title when she was 17 back in 2015. And we are having these conversations on the phone all the time and we're watching contests and we're dissecting things with each other. And we just decided one day, actually my husband decided for us, like we need to start recording these because they are, you know, relevant conversations and there's gotta be other, there's gotta be an audience that is interested in the same sort of thing. And so that's pretty much what got us into it was just kind of that, that love for talking about surfing a passion for women surfing specifically and taking note that there's a massive hole within that world, especially in podcasting. I think what so many of you guys are doing, like that, that crew that we had on for lipped last week was Mm -hmm. such a fun combination of, of, um, I think similar ideas behind a podcast of kind of a news, um, current news idea, tapping into what's happening. 
but most often with women surfing, it gets touched on as, as one little moment and, and the rest of that conversation is focused around what's happening in the guy's world. And so Rachel and I have come into it and thought, well, we could do this whole thing and we could just focus on women because that's what we get really excited talking about. And yeah, it's brought us to having a podcast, which um, we definitely didn't expect to have. Is she the youngest surfing world champ ever? She is. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. thought so. Yeah. When I that love that you know that. <laughs> well, when it happened, I remember yeah. that being true. And then I, nobody ever really talked about it. So I wasn't sure yeah. if it was just like, that's what I no, thought. It was definitely or? something that the WSL talked about when it happened. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So she was, she's the youngest world surfing champion ever. She had the goal on her wall growing up. She had a picture of Carissa who won at 18 and she wanted to beat Carissa's record and had to win. So her last year within that, had she won the following year, she would have been 18 by that stage. Um, yeah, achieved it. And that was actually the first event that I ever worked the, the oh, world really? tour, the uh, world championships for longboarding. It was in China, right? It was in China. Yep. And there was an LQS that ran in the lead up before that in Taiwan. It used to be kind of back-to-back -back events together. So I had competed in the qualifying series event in uh, Taiwan for longboarding. Lost out first heat, as I do in most events that I surf in. <laughs> and um, definitely, like, not good enough in that world. But um, ended up getting on the mic and doing some beach announcing at that contest. And that was kind of my my entrance into the WSL, actually, after doing lots of beach announcing in South Africa. And they asked me, I was going to China anyways, to just support the crew that was going to be there. And got to announce Rachel's world title. And that was the year that we met. It was so cool to see her do that at such a young age. Like, yeah. she was such a kid. She was still like studying finals and, you know, on the phone to mom and dad in between heats and playing with Taylor Jensen and Nava Young's little baby Jagger, who's like, you know, taller than most of us now. <laughs> Jagger's like the, one of the tallest kids. But yeah, it was a really cool thing to watch Rachel win that. Um, I'm friends with Josh Martin, who made, yeah. he was making her boards. He still makes boards. Yeah, for he still her, makes lots of boards. But uh, he was making her boards for her when she won that and prior to that. And um, really interesting EPS epoxy longboards mm -hmm. actually. Um, and just kind of as a side note for listeners who are interested in surfboard construction, but Josh, if you look at his Instagram, it looks like he's mainly working with old school, traditional, like he's doing balsa boards and he's doing all sorts yeah. of fancy woodworking. And so he looks like a traditionalist, but he's super innovative. And those boards that he was building for Rachel were these unbelievably flexible, Crazy, um, flexible. crazy. Yeah. Incorporating, I feel like parabolic stringers at some yes. point, there was all sorts of interesting stuff going yeah. on. Yeah. So, and they had a really tight relationship. I know she was spending a lot of time in the shaping bay with him. So yeah. Yeah. And his dad, Terry was who had, yeah, kind of started originally shaping for Rachel when she was really little. Um, so that was a huge, I think that's one, one of the cool things about her story too, is that she spent so much time in the shaping bay. Yeah, exactly. She understands equipment. Like she yeah. says stuff to me and I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like this board feels fun and I can nose ride. Sweet. Right. I'm stoked. Right, like, right, right. Um, she's so knowledgeable on that side of things and she put so much work in behind the scenes there to just, yeah, know her craft and to achieve like a goal like that at a young age. And she still just spends so much time working on that sort of thing. Do you envision any viable way for professional competitive longboard tour to exist? like where the surfers actually make a living wage oh, the and they dream. have, and they have multiple events <laughs> yeah. to compete in. Okay. So you asked me before about my goals as a commentator. Yep. If the longboard tour is a real tour where we can make a living out of it, I would probably call longboard heats for the rest of my life. I mean, I absolutely love being on the CT, but I see the longboard tour as something that is, has, has been so under celebrated and underappreciated with 
the sport that it is, that there's, there's like everybody in the world rides longboards. Like how have we not been able to tap into the fact that the entire planet is riding longboards? The entrance to surfing for every surfer in the world, unless you're like a kid under the age of eight who's tiny and can stand up on a little shortboard, we're all riding soft tops to start. We're all riding something over eight foot, slowly working our way down. Maybe if you really like the feeling of a glide, working your way to something bigger instead of something smaller. And I just feel like there's a fully, like there has to be a way to make it sustainable. And I know there's a lot of people that have put work into it and would probably dedicate their lives to trying to make that something that's sustainable. And with that brings in the conversation that longboarders are stinking competitive. Like they want to be surfing in contests and they want to be winning world titles. So it's not that there's a lack of interest from the competitors even. I think they want it. And I think that there just has to be like, there's obviously a formula that's been missing. Tell me what it is. I don't know. I is, mean, and is, I think, is there a solve to the yeah. equation? I mean, I'm, I definitely like don't know what it would be. Um, I think that having the kind of, I think having some space where there's, there is that kind of qualifying series to get surfers onto it. Cause we need to be able to bring new talent in having it in a global space, which is what we did in 2019 when Devin Howard came on was really good where we had like three events that led up to a world title event, a spread of points where there was lower ranked point, like 5,000 points for three events of the season and then 10,000 points for the crowning event, which meant you couldn't win the world title without competing in the crowning event. I think that sort of system is a really good system because it does open up the doors for a lot of different surfers. And also maybe on a budget perspective allows you to run more events, have more surfers in without maybe, I mean, we need more prize money in longboarding, but I think the surfers would sacrifice that for the sake of having an actual tour and then growing that, right? Showing that there's an interest and that there is an audience to tap into. Um, I think it just needs to actually be poured into and have some some real buy-in. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's there. I mean, how many brands? Like we're sitting in Album Surf Shop right now. Like I feel like this would be a, a company, like so many cool brands like this Yeah. that would sponsor a longboard event or sponsor longboarders before they would ever go close to the CT. Yeah. And that's a great thing because there's so many other brands and there's so much marketability in that shortboarding world, but there's so much that's just left sitting that I think longboarding could tap into. I, I agree. Um, I don't know who's going to pony up the cash to do it. Yes. You know, and I, it's yeah. interesting that the WSL keeps it going, but doesn't really invest into it in the way that like a meaningful way that could actually do the things. But I also understand their, uh, focus often feels too diffused and I make it would make a lot of sense for them just to focus really on pointy thrusters and that thing rather than trying to have multiple things. But I do agree with everything that you said about um, there's a broader audience here that you could be tapping into. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense in, in a way that like, of course, if you're going to watch pro athletes, they shouldn't be relatable. Like you saying, oh, we all started on longboard. Right. But let's watch the people who are the best in the world do this thing that I actually can't relate to. But yeah. they, they, there is some, the fact that there's such a disparity between the way that professional competitive surfing uh, is displayed versus 
every other surfers on the planet experience when they go to the beach. Yeah. There's a huge chasm there. Oh, it's so it, different. Right? Yeah. That it feels like there should, there could be, there's an opportunity again to access a much, much broader audience if you represented what is actually happening in the real world. Yeah. Ultimately, I think. Yeah, totally. But I do have thoughts for what the solve is oh, okay, that I asked me. you about. Yeah. <laughs> I asked you the question so that I could answer it. Yeah, perfect. Sorry, I don't have the actual business answer. Rachel, if Rachel was sitting next to me right now, like she definitely yeah. has the answer. Yeah, I would imagine she does. Sure yeah. She um, I think it all comes down to like drama essentially is what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Like, if it's competition, and like you said, they're actually super competitive, these athletes, Yeah. then that's really what drama is kind of what you center the storyline around. Yeah. And the caveat is, turns out, the drama between the surfers is the secondary drama that should be taking place. The drama is mother nature, man or woman versus nature. And mm -hmm. so if you focus on that and let everything everything else kind of play uh, solves for itself, and then within that, now it becomes about who can kind of best mother nature better, the competitor A or competitor B. Right. So, of course, Pipeline, Tahiti, these locations are perfect examples of that. With Longboarder, with Longboard, it becomes a little bit more complicated yeah. because obviously they're not necessarily going to be surfing those spots. But I think that that still needs to be factored in, like really compelling surf. And then the best athletes in the world – surfing those waves in a way that only 1% of the surfing world can. That's kind of what you need. Yes. I mean, that's it. You absolutely nailed it. It's getting the world's best longboarders in the world's best longboarding waves. 100%. That has lacked on the longboard tour since I've been around, since I've paid any attention to it for yeah. a very, very long time. And the WSL has made a great move in the right direction with it in last year, introducing Malibu to that conversation again. Huge huge that we ran the title event for for crowning our world champions at Malibu like the most classic longboarding wave in the world and that's going to happen again that's in a few weeks time in October so that's a move in the right direction but beyond that and that's the conversation that's coming out of the surfers constantly right and of I think course. in the WSL they're, they're building a tour for next year we don't know what the stops are going to be yet but we know that there's going to be another there's going to be an extra stop on so I, I believe that there's going to be four events for next year Good which is a great move in the right direction again. So they're starting to push some things like that. Um, Malibu, I'm sure, will be the finishing event because I think that they're really happy with that. The surfers are really happy with that. But it's the constant question of getting the surfers to actually be able to surf longboard waves. Well, great that Malibu's a venue. Now run it at good Malibu. Yes. <laughs> you that. know that? Oh, it's so tricky. So I don't know if you were aware of this. I just learned this last year. But with the permits there, you have to make a call like a week in advance. Oh, I didn't know. To that. actually run it. Yeah, I had no idea either. So last year was weird, right? We had like some really, really good heats. Nothing big. It wasn't like, you know, overhead or anything. That would have been epic. But they actually have to, they've got a 10-day waiting period and they've got to make the decision on the two days to run that they're given. Crazy. A week out. So they're looking at a forecast and they're making a guess. It's super inconvenient. I, yeah. again, I almost feel like I know there's all these other interests and this bureaucracy and there's, you know, government, red tape, whatever. Yeah. But just up here, just put the inherent, the best waves in the world. Yes. Athletes in the best surf is the goal at all times. Yes. And then 
figure out everything else after that. Yeah. Because I feel like there's a bunch of other things they're trying to figure out. And then, okay, with these parameters, let's now find the waves that work and the time yeah. periods that work within these parameters. Yeah. No, shirk the parameters. It has to be the best waves in the world. Yeah. And then, of course, try to land it in a forecast that works as well. And then that's the that's the inherent drama that no other sport has. Like yes. surfing trying to be like these other sports, it's only it's always going to be a lesser version if you're trying to copy those things, but what we have nobody can touch. And what you're in my personal experiences with surfing is centered around that thing that nothing else can touch. And so that's what I think competitive surfing should be centered around. And then it, it is interesting if competitors don't like one another and have vendettas and all that stuff becomes interesting. Yeah. But the mother nature versus man and woman is the most compelling thing of all. Yeah. Um, but in regard to like surfers being interesting, Joel Tudor is super interesting. And so I want to watch him compete, you know? Yeah. And so that becomes a secondary or tertiary focus. Yeah, totally. And you get these incredible storylines. I mean, the, one of the, I guess it's, I always, we kind of have this conversation longboarding that like, you know, it's, it's got the, the, the longevity, right? Right. You can write a longboard. That's why you're seeing Joel Tudor win a world title last year at, at, in his forties. But then you've got Kelly <laughs> at 50 that won pipe this year. And we're like, oh, right. right. The longevity conversation actually exists across surfing, totally. which is one of the reasons I think it draws us in so much. But I think it is. Yeah. That, that conversation and longboarding, like those storylines are definitely there. The surfers are amazing. They're all one of the things that's unique about the longboard world because they can't make a living. Very few of those surfers are making a living just out of longboarding. No one's really making a, a living out of competing as a longboarder no. because the prize money is so, so low. If they're paying their costs for that contest, that's like a really good thing. And that's like two of the people. That right? means they like made the it to the final. That's like the man and the woman that won, right? Not even maybe second place. Like sometimes they can pay their costs. Sometimes they can't depending on where the contest is. But that's just something they deal with at the moment. But it is like, yeah, there's those those storylines that are available and most of those surfers are working full-time jobs outside of surfing and they've got full-time businesses, they're a college professor, they're running a board like they're they're shapers, um they're work they're just doing so many different things that is not the case. Like you're never going to have a conversation about Tatiana Weston Webb, the surfer's rep, who's working a side job right to pay for her time on tour. Right. Like that's not happening. But that's happening to Rachel Tilly, who was the surfer's rep for years, who's working a side job to pay for her to be able to fly to the next contest. And and that's like the case across every surfer in that tour, which is such an interesting dynamic. I almost like too. it more that way, to be it's honest. It's really cool because it's like the, you, they're- Well, they're going to be more interesting individuals. Yes, that's totally. What it's it's yeah. challenge that yeah. they're meeting, you know? Yeah. And that's how, uh, even for the males, it was- when you look at the busting down the door era, you know, yeah. like they were often barely scraping by or not scraping by or selling drugs, by the way, yeah. to get to the next thing. Yeah. And they, they created these fascinating, when you look back, it's like, wow, those surfers had so much more personality Yeah, because of the perseverance. Yeah, totally. So part of me likes that about the longboard tour, but yeah. there also has to be, um, <laughs> There's also definitely a hope from everyone involved yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that one day people can make a career out of this. Yeah. And it's not the kind of select few that have managed to find some great sponsorship. Right. And that's huge. Like the, the brands out there that are sponsoring longboarders, like, thank you. That yeah. is massive for the sport. And that's also massive for the next generation coming up in, in the next group of, you know, I'm, I was out at Cardiff. We've been in Encinas for the last four weeks or so. And just this little girl patted out on longboard and she's riding a Kai Salas one and Kai is on the tour and he started his own company for boards a couple years ago. And it was so cool to see this young girl paddle out on board and think, okay, she's, 
she's riding his equipment. She's pretty decent surfer. She's probably got aspirations to qualify and try and win a world title one day. Like she probably is in the know enough to know that there's a tour that exists, which like I didn't know there was a tour that existed when I was a kid because we didn't compete. But I think it's just cool that like there's, yeah, hopefully there's hope yeah. <laughs> for the next generation that want to do this also. Yeah. Good news is she has career options yes. without that. Totally. In terms of just making a living off of being. Oh, and she's going to have to most likely. Or no, <laughs> yeah. but making a living off of being a yeah. professional surfer. Oh, yes. Without winning a world title. Yes. Like also there's, that. there's plenty of ways to now do it. Yeah. Whether it's Instagram or YouTube or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, you talked about when you first got involved in surfing, having no awareness of the competitive scene and then being fervent about the competitive scene with your commentary work. I'm wondering what your thoughts or how your thoughts have changed on professional competitive surfing now that you've gotten a peek behind the curtain at mm. the inner workings. Yeah, I guess I'm just a huge fan of it. I honestly, I'm a really competitive person. Um, and so always, I was always part of team sports. I didn't really do individual sports, but I think getting to kind of appreciate the, maybe it is because of my sport background, getting to appreciate appreciate the athleticism behind competitive surfing. I think especially for those CT surfers or the QS warriors, like we're seeing them put in the hard time to be able to handle five heats at trestles to try and win a world title. Like there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes. And I have really enjoyed kind of that aspect and getting to know more about that because that was not my impression of what professional surfing even was. I think when I joined it, it was still that idea of what you just described. Everyone kind of with, uh, you know, working side jobs, selling something on the side to pay their way to the next thing. And it wasn't that long ago. I think that even professional surfing looked that way. Yeah. And now it's very different. And um, yeah, I just have really enjoyed being in that space and getting to see that hunger and that competitive drive, as well as those dynamics of having, you know, kind of those, those actual good friendships, I think, that develop between the surfers. That's really fun to kind of see unfold as competitive as they are with each other and there are those rivalries i think sometimes they're not as much of a rivalry as we think they are because the these surfers are on the road together all the time like they kind of have to be friends and yeah. i think that's kind of a really cool thing about surfing and isn't the case like you're not going to have a, a, a two football teams that are buddies with each other right that are competing against each other and so for the surfers they have those little teams around them their coach their mom their dad their par partner whoever shapers but they've also got that like network of the other surfers to draw from and the other staff members. Like we're all on the road for so much of the year. It is like this weird traveling circus of like trying to keep our head afloat and some of that crew that does it for like 11 months, which is crazy. Or 11 years. Or Yeah, 11 I mean, months of the year and they're doing it for like, you know, 11 to 15 to 20 years. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Which I understand it almost makes sense that WSL doesn't have you on for all those events mm -hmm. so that you can maintain a normal life and hopefully yeah. they can, you can have more longevity in your career because you're not burned out. But I don't understand how the surfers do it. Yeah. Like I don't even understand why Kelly wants to do it. That's you know shocking. what I mean? Like, dude. <laughs> what is he still doing here? Take some time off, yes, buddy. You've got totally. a bunch of other stuff going on. Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. that's been the conversation. Even thinking of finals this week, like would Steph retire getting number eight? I don't I think she will. But I've heard it from plenty of people. Yeah. I think she's too, I think she just enjoys it too much and she's she's used to that. I thought Felipe, maybe, I could see him walking away. He's finally achieved that goal. He's got his family. He's got his whole setup here. But also, what else would he do? Not, you know? Yeah. And Like, I think that's the major question for all of that crew. He's too young. 
like he's too young. He will. Sure. He f- might think it's a good idea now, and then yeah. he'll get six months down the road and be like, "I what still got I more thinking? in me." Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, he's got another decade in him, like for yeah. sure. You know, yeah, totally. But yeah, um, it is an interesting one. It is. Um, do you ever take a break from surfing? Yeah. Your life is all surfing in yeah. every direction. Yeah. Um, if it's really cold. I don't mean the act of surfing itself. I just mean yeah. a break mentally from talking about surfing, mm. assessing surfing, also surfing the act itself. Yeah, but. yeah. There's plenty of events that I don't watch. Like if I'm not on, sometimes I'll watch, sometimes I won't if it's like a heat I'm interested in. But up until this year, probably I watched far less than I should have. I probably should have been watching more just to be better at my job. Um, but yeah, I take plenty of time off of it if I'm, if I'm not, and now that we've been doing the podcast, so the formula with that is that we try and release an episode at the start of every week and it's a news podcast. And most of the news in women's surfing is actually competitive surfing because women's surfing doesn't have as wide a berth as men's does with all the free surfing, all the different stuff that's been happening for men's surfing for so long. We do get some of that happening in women's surfing, but the vast majority is that is that it's still competitive based, whether it's QS or challenger series or, or championship tour. And so we, we do talk about that on a weekly basis, but we don't focus on it the entire week. So I kind of like, don't even think about it until we're like, Oh, it's Monday. What are we recording this today? Go quick look at what was happening and then put our notes together and record an episode like that. Um, just to kind of debrief on what had happened that week in women's surfing. But yeah, there's plenty of time that I just am done. Good. No thanks. Good. Yeah. Or my <laughs> husband brings up because he produces for us and he's our editor and everything. And he's like, yeah, he's so he's been so helpful for me in this whole journey. I think he's far more interested in surfing than I even am, as interested as I am. Um, and so there's just times where I'm like, please just stop. I just no, we can't talk about this today. Yeah. Can't talk about it until three o'clock this afternoon. Perfect. <laughs> and yeah. It's yeah. good. Good. I to definitely don't like eat, breathe, sleep this. Okay, good. As much as it may seem that way. Okay. Yeah. Um yeah. Who's or what media surf media do you follow? Um, we follow like what Stab is doing. Follow a little bits of Beach Grit because it's just kind of funny and interesting sometimes. Um, we follow. There's another girls one that's called Surf Maven that's just come out. I haven't seen it. Yeah, that's really cool. Oh, sorry, Sea Maven. Oh, okay. That's Still don't know. Sea Maven magazine. They're a little bit newer to things, but have been doing some really cool stuff around women surfing specifically. And then Emotion Surf is another really cool one um, that's got a few print uh, magazines that have come out as well. Mm. I'll, yeah. follow. I'll follow and check it out. Yeah, on the girl side of things, Murmur Magazine is a really good one that's running out of Australia. Rumor? A couple of Murmur. Murmur. Yeah, I've seen, I have seen it. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Um, True and Jesse Starling, they're really sweet. Have been doing stuff for a little while. Um, Joyce Magazine's kind of come and gone in little flares, but she's sort of back around again. Um, yeah, those are sort of some of the ones that we've been following. Got it. Yeah. Um, who's surfing? Do you currently enjoy or look forward to or stop scrolling just to watch? Um... Probably anything that like Steph posts. <laughs> I'm just such a big fan of anything that's really stylish surfing like that. Um, Kalise Kaleopa'a yep. on the longboard side. She's currently like tied for number one in the world. She's somebody that I could watch a lot of. Um, outside of that, I've really been enjoying, 
I actually really enjoyed that new film and a lot of the clips that have been coming out on the men's side from the new Dane Reynolds film. Mm-hmm. Blanking on the name right now. Glad um, you scored. Yes, that one, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Um, how did you feel about Steph's run last week on finals day? Pretty insane. <laughs> it was really <laughs> such a cool storyline to yeah. watch develop throughout the day. Yeah. Um, I don't know if either of us or anybody on our appearance on Lipped touched on that potential storyline, but I was kicking myself for not thinking of it in advance on how rad that would be. Yeah. It's because everybody's, somebody pointed out to me, a listener pointed out to me, he was rooting for Steph, but the same thing was happening on the men's side with Idolo. And he was rooting for Felipe to stop Idolo. And I was like, yeah, what is the difference? Yeah. We all love Steph, of course, so we're rooting for her, but we also love Carissa, so you don't want to see this happen to Carissa. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, so I was wondering why would that, she just had this momentum, this of us wanting her to do that. It was epic. Yeah, yeah. I think it was, it was this crazy amount of momentum that came through from her that nobody saw coming. I don't think, I don't think we really actually thought that someone could win from that position. I didn't. Yeah, I don't know if I did or if I didn't. As soon as she like locked in, I guess that, priority decision against Brissa. Yeah. As soon as that happened, a light bulb went off for me where I'm like, oh shoot. Yeah. She could actually smoke the field. Oh, totally. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It was definitely that. It was like at the start of the heat, like up, oh, Steph, same as usual. Like it's not going to happen. It's early morning heat. First of the day, like this is all going to go against her. We're not going to see this happen. Um, and then as soon as that moment happened with Brissa, there was like a change in who Steph was and pedaling out in the next heat. She was just like a different surfer. Yeah. And I think too, for her, it was like she, I think she became a bit of a different surfer in the back half of this year. And so I kind of saw that coming through from her. I didn't still think that she probably had the odds in her favor to actually win the title this year in the format. But I think seeing her run this year to me was really incredible. Like going from almost not making the cut, which was insane. Like what would we have done? without Steph Gilmore on tour this year, had she fallen off at the cut. Like, I, I don't know how we would have, like, moved forward from that. And then to see her actually find momentum, to get that win in El Salvador, and, like, to just start surfing really well was really cool. Um, and then to see her kind of go through almost, like, that same moment on finals day. It was, like, the relapse of her entire year happened mm. right in front of her in that first heat, right? Yeah. She almost didn't do it. Brisa made that that mistake, which was so sad because Brisa was surfing so well. She's someone who's surfing I really enjoyed this year. She'll be around. I'm, She'll be she's back. She's going to be around that's a learning for a long time for sure. But Definitely. In, but in yeah. that moment, yeah. you know, that's the champ took advantage. Exactly. Um, and then to just, once that moment happened, it was like, oh, yeah, Steph's here. Yeah. And she can definitely do this. She and even I just, said it in yeah. a post-heat interview. Yeah. She was like, in that moment, like I, leading into that moment, I was realizing the feeling I had last year and the mistakes I made last year at this event in this first heat. And I was like, there's no way in hell I'm letting that happen again. Yeah. And then, and the thing is once she gets to her feet on a right hand point break, it's like, she knows what she can do. There's no question about her ability. So Steph, just do you, Yeah. you know, just do you and you'll blow doors on everybody. Yeah, that was exactly it. And I think that was like, I think Carissa must've just known that was the stuff that she was paddling out against. Right. It it felt that way. It felt like Carissa saw this train coming and she was quaking in her boots Yeah. as opposed to Felipe. 
he wasn't even looking at the train. Mm-hmm. Felipe was just like, I'm going out there to do what I do every day of the week and nobody can stop me. Yeah. And so it almost didn't matter what Idolo was up to. You know? Yeah, I totally agree with you. Where for Carissa, like she was nervous knowing the stuff that was coming out against totally. her or terrified. Because she idolized Steph for so long. Totally. And I yeah. mean, looking at their world title years, like they went back and forth yeah. for so many of those years through like the 2000, what, probably like 13s, 14s, 15s, that kind of season where it was like those two and for them to be able to match up against each other in that final matchup was insane. And then like Carissa just didn't show up. Yeah. And she had those couple paddles and missed those waves. Shocking. Shocking. Like, like literally such deep shock inside of my body as that was happening because they had all the scoring potential. Like they were the waves and she was going to get the score. She just, and she had priority and she had like everything. She had everything in front of her. It's so relatable. I, though. Yeah, it's, it's like I, I, the point I related to is when the nerves are on, I make stupid er- yes. errors in the surf where I like revert back to being a complete novice yeah. strictly yeah, totally. because I got nervous, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. I saw her do that. I'm like, oof. Yeah. I know exactly what that yeah. feels like and that on was a much the weird, smaller scale. I feel like that was a weird thing too, because trestles is so soft, right? And it is like, it has those little moments and it's such, I mean, it was, easy waves to catch nerves into the equation. It does have those little moments where it's like that kind of back off. Yeah. And that kind of like, okay, it it looks like it's going to peak. It doesn't peak. You're trying to paddle into it. It's not quite there. And she got sucked into that whole realm, which is like not something that she should have been sucked into, but it was almost like there's all this conversation about trestles being a wave that has zero consequence to it. And and we'd love to see finals running in a wave of consequence. Right. But like, that's the consequence. Like that was the consequence for Carissa. They're just getting sucked into that funny little moment of like knowing how like the softness of the wave was the consequence that worked against her twice twice (laughs) that that was nuts the fact that it happened a second time and then for Steph to like go out and do that little like thinner reverse club sandwich whatever you call it at the end it was crazy and that to me was like I was hoping to see Carissa in a moment like that like my expectation at the start of the day was that Steph would probably make it through a heat or two and then because she'd be fiery and wanting to come back from last year, but then in a, maybe in a Joanne Carissa final matchup, we'd, if, if Carissa found some momentum, we'd end up seeing her go to the air, just do something fun because she'd, she'd already be in that rhythm. She'd be dropping big scores. And to see Steph do that to her, like Steph's not somebody that we necessarily equate to that. We've seen her do it a couple of times. She did. And she went to the air in I think Mexico last year, but for her to do that to Carissa mm-hmm. to me was like, Ooh, it was a, yeah, it was like a death blow, you know, yes. like she was already shredding, but then to totally. do that exclamation point. Yeah. But I think that turn in a lot of ways is gnarlier than going to the air. Yeah. That club sandwich. Oh turn, yeah. It's so cool. Just something so progressive yeah. and so different. And yeah, I just thought I that was the that. coolest moment for her to seriously like put the nail in the coffin. Um, do you have comments on kind of the math of the day? The fact that Stephanie Gilmore went into the event more than 10,000 points behind. Yeah. So if it were a normal event or normal math for an event, yeah. even if she won an event, it's only worth 10,000 points. So she would not have accumulated enough points to win the season. But all of that is not relevant in this final competition. So do you have any yeah. thoughts on that, on the funky math? Yeah, it's a weird one. I think um, I don't like the look of that. I mean, literally just pulling up the rankings right now, like Steph's number one in the world for this year, but she's almost 11,000 points behind. Like it, it's that, it's just 
wrong. Like it doesn't make any sense. Um, I think within that, my thoughts around it are there's no question as far as like a legitimacy of a world title. They've surfed the format they've been given and Steph just won in that Every, format. Everybody agreed to the rules. Everybody yeah. agreed to the rules. This is the format. Like there's no question about that. But I do think that there, I do think because surfing has so many variables to it that we are so different from mainstream sports. The ocean changes constantly. There's so many, every every playing field that we pedal out into is different than the next. It's different than being on a soccer field, on a football field, on a court playing basketball, where you can kind of have maybe these formats where everything's gonna be the same and so you can kind of play around with things this way. We feel like in surfing, because there's so much that changes within that and every spot's so different. I really love the idea of rewarding the surfer that's the most consistent throughout that, through a season. And knowing the like the points difference and the format's just a weird one for me now to wrap my head around. Of like, okay, this is our sport moving forward. We've done this two years in a row. We're, we have to be okay with it because it's what's happening. But it does just seem like something that's really strange. And I think the one argument that, that I've heard, and it's kind of what the longboard tour is doing at the moment, that could be like kind of a good shift to that is where you have like the finals event is worth more points, but there's still points involved. And so there still is this, maybe somehow the opportunity to where that last place person could walk away in first but it also still weighs heavily on that first place person because of points and all the work they put in through the entire year, actually having the highest advantage to walk away a world champion, if that makes sense. I've got another suggestion. Okay. Um, you have to be, ma- in order to get access into finals day, you have to be mathematically in contention for a world mm. title. Okay. So rather yeah. than mandating, we're gonna have five people at finals day, it could be three. Or it could be seven. Ooh, interesting. Because that makes kind of sense with what I'm thinking. Because if there's a mathematical way where you could win the world title, like for Malibu this year for longboarding, there's gonna be a bunch of surfers in the draw, but you've probably got, at least on the women's side, I guess on the men's and women's side, we've got different winners. So that makes sense. But you're gonna have like seven that are potentials for world title. Now the top the most likely is still going to be those those two that are tied for first because they've got 5,000 points going into that event. But if they lose out early, those other surfers walk away higher placed, their points, they could get the points back to win the world title. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. that makes sense. Like in a point scenario to have it as top three to well, top seven. Yeah, because like it's um, silly to throw out all the points yeah. entirely. It's kind of weird. So right? the points still need to have value and whether you wait certain events differently, you know, yeah. and maybe that, maybe you should, maybe pipe should be worth more than El Salvador Ooh, or something like that. Okay. But it seems ridiculous to throw the points out entirely. So I think that that would be the easiest solve. I, I also understand if they want five for some specific reason, then maybe they have an argument there. Yeah. But I think that you need to mathematically have a shot at the title to be going for the title on the final event. Yeah. And there was an event two or three or four years ago on the men's side going into pipe when pipe was the final event of the season where, yeah, I think there were seven or eight. It was like Jordy Smith in seventh or eight had a shot if one, two, three, four, five all lost and he yeah. won the event or what it was an outside shot, but he had a mathematical shot, yeah. you know? So in that year there would be seven that compete in this format, you yeah. know, and other years it's just two people and that's compelling also. Yeah. So I think it could be reworked. 
moving yeah. forward. Yeah, I definitely agree, though. I think the points thing is, I think it's worth rewarding the surfers that have done so well in the year. And yeah. obviously putting them in that order, that hierarchy order, you know, first to fifth going into it. Last year, it was like, oh, yeah, okay, that clearly works, right? Because yeah, the sense. two winners won, like yeah. the gold jerseys won. And I think that kind of like made us all believe in the system. And then this year, we're like, wait, what? <laughs> it's going in, different. Going into it last year, though, yeah. the criticism was, what if the first don't? Exactly. And then they did, and we're like, oh, oh I guess oh, we'll okay. shut up. It, yeah, they yeah, know totally. what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And then this year, now it's to, like, oh. hey, my, my criticism from <laughs> yeah. last year is And now like, now. Italo could have won. Like, had right. he had the judges liked those airs that he was pulling on that first section, and he was able to actually, like, you know, yeah, yeah. pull enough through to beat the rail work of Felipe, like, we could have seen, we could easily have seen him take away the world title this year. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah. yeah. I think it could be, re the whole thing can be reconsidered yeah. a little bit. And yeah. they, you know, the WSL is, um, done good at pivoting and adjusting and throwing out bad ideas and trying to incorporate new. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. Uh, what is your current relationship like with surfing the act itself? Are um, you, are you often surfing? Yeah, we've been surfing a ton just cause the water's so warm right now. Being back in Southern California, we've been going to Sano very often. Um, I got a new Tyler Warren log when we landed here and have just had so much fun figuring it out. So we've been surfing a ton um, just because it's been really easy. Haven't had probably the most waves this year because we've been working so many of the events. And that's hard because we show up to a contest and you run on the good days. And then our free days are usually terrible or stormy or there's zero waves or whatever the deal is. So, um, yeah, my current relationship, very positive. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. That's my concern. Very positive. Always, well, my concern, I mean, or maybe so fun. maybe what listeners don't know, is like, it seems great if you work in surfing and you're traveling the world and getting to go to all these amazing spots, but yeah. the busier you are professionally, the less you actually have time yeah. to do the thing itself. So I'm glad to hear that you're still taking time and making yeah. time for it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Uh, the final question, which you may have already answered, was just what was the last surfboard that you rode? Uh, yesterday, rode the Tyler Warren. It's a Salinas model. Um, it's a 9.4. It's not super heavy, um, but it's like a pretty heavy, it's, yeah, it's a good log. proper classic log. Um, kind of nice big square tail with a little bit of kick in it. And it's probably the more classic California board that I've owned in the last decade. Um, oh, and nice. I specifically left, been riding a Thomas in Australia most of the time. I specifically left that there this time around because I wasn't liking it last year when we were here in California and wanted to buy like a Californian shaped board. Um, and this one's been really good. What's the difference design uh, wise? Yeah. So this one's like, it's a little bit flatter. It is kind of a really like vanilla board. It's kind of like, it's got 50, 50 rails, real soft all around, but kind of like that wide nose kind of uh, pulls into like a little square tail at the finish, but it doesn't have like a wide point in that kind of back third. It doesn't have big hips on it or anything. Um, it just kind of cuts through everything really easily. And I think surfing here in California, the waves are so soft. And I got a good reminder of that after being away for a long time last year coming back that just wanting a board that kind of has a really good trim line to it is really important. A little bit of spoon in the nose, but kind of um, just a big, heavy flat log to get through soft just sections, to get through soft sections and then when you get it in the pocket it's good shape it's going to nose ride really well or it's going to be really nice on the tail anyways 
Um, but mostly my goal in getting a board here this time and spent a crazy amount of money on it, but it's worth it. It's a good investment. Um, was to get something that would just cut through those really soft sections of surfing somewhere like California. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's absolutely what I wanted. Yeah. Stoked. He makes beautiful boards. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Uh, what did I write? I've actually been writing the free scrubber, um, channel islands, free scrubber, the Tom Curran twin fin. Nice. Yeah. I got one of those two or three months ago and I've almost ridden it exclusively. The waves are good when the waves are bad, anything. Yeah. So that's my good. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, Shannon, nice seeing you two times, two weeks in a row. Yeah, so good. <laughs> thanks for doing this and driving up. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is fun. Yeah, gladly. Behave like a pal's Look at what the light did now. Behave like a bounce pond. Look at what the light did now. Thank you, Shannon Hughes. I've linked to Shannon Hughes' website and podcast and social media on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Go check all that stuff out. Also, um, thanks for all of the love and engagement on Instagram this past couple of weeks. We've been devoting a bit of energy there for the first time in probably 18 months. So it is uh, paying off. It's spreading like wildfire. Our recent Brad Gerlach post, I think, has a quarter of a million views right now. a lot more than anything that we've ever posted in the past. So just lots of new followers coming off that and the Victor Bernardo episode, which then results in a spike in downloads. So thank you so much for all of that. And if you're a new listener here, welcome. Enjoy the 400 plus episodes in our archives. We have a number of other podcasts as well that we produce, two that I actually co-host, Spit with Scott Bass and then The Grit with Chaz Smith. Both have new episodes weekly. And then Scott Bass also hosts the Boardroom podcast. And the Brewer Brothers do a fantastic job with hardcore surf history. You can find all of it on surfsplendorpodcast.com. So enjoy all of that. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I will be back here with an all-new show next week. So until then, I'm reminding you to get back into the ocean. Share some waves and, of course, shred on. Pieces, look at what the